This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. The country singer Jason Aldean released a song called Try That in a Small Town. And at first, it didn't get any particular attention. Got a gun that my granddad gave me. But last month, a music video for the song came out, produced by a company called Tacklebox Films. The video put Aldine's song in a very different light. It featured footage of protests that followed the killing of George Floyd, and it was filmed at a county courthouse where a lynching once took place. So lyrics like, try that in a small town, see how far you make it down the road, well, it seemed to be celebrating vigilantism and violence. Some have even said that the song is pro-lynching. Aldine's defenders, and there are many, say the song praises small-town values and respect for the law. A few seconds of the protest footage were later removed, and the controversy helped push the song to number one on Billboard's Hot 100 chart. Staff writer Emily Nussbaum, a huge fan of country music, has been in Nashville over the last few months reporting on the very complicated politics of country music right now. On the one hand, there's a culture war like the battle surrounding the Aldine song. On the other hand, there's a music that's actually diversifying with more women, more black artists, more LGBT performers claiming country music as their own. Now, Emily, you described Nashville as a town midway through a bloody metamorphosis. What did you mean by that? Well, when I first went down to Nashville, I was primarily going down there because there was a bunch of different artists who I was interested in. I was interested in all this Americana, and I mainly wanted to write about the rise of outsider artists and the kind of a new outlaw in and, country and, music. In Nashville terms, what does that mean? What I mean is... Um, the kinds of musicians who, both because of their identity and the kind of music they play and their politics, are outside the mainstream of what's on country radio. You can hear me on the radio. You want to turn me on, turn on your stereo. You can sing along. A lot of them, women, black country artists, queer country artists, right. 
But what I found when I got there was that the city itself was a secondary subject for the piece because the city has changed radically within the century, but definitely within the last couple of years, especially since the pandemic. There's been this massive political change that has to do with the state of Tennessee as well and with the governor of Tennessee. And there's also been tremendous gentrification and the two things overlapped. And they're inseparable from the dynamics within the country scene, which really do have this culture war split between people on various sides. Are you saying that Nashville has moved left? Well, no, Nashville's a blue city. Mm-hmm. Nashville has traditionally been a, a blue bubble within a red state. Like Austin or something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a common dynamic throughout the country, but uh, there's a city-state clash that's been going on. And again, this is stuff that I learned really while I was down there because, you know, I set out to talk about music, but politics are inseparable from it. And there really was all this stuff going on, including the fact that Nashville's become a magnet for right-wing figures like the Daily Wire moved there during the pandemic or just after the pandemic started. And um, the governor is really trying to crush the blueness of the city. Like, the city council turned down. They refused to host the RNC. And so the governor essentially vowed revenge. And the whole state is so gerrymandered that it's become impossible for (laughs) people to fight these policies. But the Nashville scene that you saw that you spent a lot of time uh, experiencing in clubs and studios and in people's homes and all the rest is something much more variegated, much more interesting. Um, it's not all Toby Keith and Morgan Wallen. No, and, and, not and, at all. And, and right. actually, that's to so me... So how is that How is that diversification come about? And what is the scene actually like now? Well, I, I, I focused on a bunch of different groups of musicians, but... In the aggregate, I focused a lot on female singer-songwriters, the extreme expansion and prominence of black country artists, often in Americana, but also in mainstream country, and a really vibrant queer country community. And also there are many more mainstream stars who have come out. These are three groups that have very different types of issues structurally, but the main thing is they play a wide variety of really vibrant music that includes the kinds of things that often don't go on country radio, which include a more stripped-down kind of production style. but also lyrics about all sorts of experiences. And are their audiences correspondingly big? I mean, I don't know whether I don't know their exact audiences. Definitely people who play Americana are playing for a passionate, loving audience, and there is a way to make a living in it, but it does not have the commercial force of what's called Music Row that goes on to country radio. So it's a different economic calculation. But the big stars of Americana, like Jason Isbell, are huge stars that I'm sure a lot of our listeners know about. But beyond Jason, there's an enormous community of great musicians that have no chance of getting onto terrestrial country radio, but people should seek out because it's... Who are your favorites? (laughs) I mean, some people I like are mainstream country stars like Ashley McBride Mm -hmm. and uh, Casey Musgraves and Maren Morris. And 
And Maren Morris has been pretty vocal about social issues. How has that affected her career? Well, Maren Morris is the standout right now on the commercial side of it, on the people who get played on country radio. She's been a vocal, progressive advocate for all sorts of things. I want my fellow country music artists and artists in general to understand that inclusivity is not only the right thing, but it's good for business. You open yourself up and your sound to a much larger audience, even if you lose some along the way. And that hasn't hurt her. It has absolutely. She's gotten huge pushback. I mean, it's hurt. It's hurt her in a, in, a, in a serious way. Well, she wasn't at the. I mean, this year alone, she was. I mean, Jason Aldean, who people may be familiar with from this recent stuff going on with the song of his, he got into a clash with her. He and his wife, who are very MAGA conservative people, got into a clash with her online. She called him, she called his wife um, Insurrection Barbie. Nice. And, and they both <laughs> sold T-shirts off this clash. And he had people at his concerts boo her. So there's definitely uh. that. But, you know, he was at the last, I think it was the AMC Awards, and she was not. She, you know, and when I, I don't know exactly what she's going to do or where she's going to be, but. Well, now she, Maren Morris is now working with Jack Antonoff, who's a pop music producer. Do you, do you find that some of these musicians who are in country and have more progressive politics move, move from country to pop just as, you know, um, so many have before? I mean, there's a strong dynamic, especially— I mean, Swift, for one. Espe- yeah, especially of women in country music. Essentially, the space for them within terrestrial country music is small. The pressures on them and the expectations for their behavior are narrow and punitive. And so inevitably, they either choose or get pushed out and end up becoming more in the pop sphere. And so this is not just Taylor Swift. It's Brandi Carlisle. It's um, Casey Musgraves who did the same thing. And I don't know whether Maren Morris is going to end up doing more pop stuff. That's not for me to say. So you're saying their musical evolution, is they were pushed into it almost for political I think, it, I think it depends on the individual person, why they ended up leaving. Honestly, when I first started talking to people in Nashville, one of the questions that I just could not get over was people kept saying, well, you know, women are a less commercial prospect in country radio. And, you you know, there's this guy that I interviewed for it who was a radio um, consultant. And he there was a big blow up about this because in 2015, he said women are like the tomatoes in the salad and they need to be distributed variously <laughs> and men are the lettuce. I mean, very strange. But the rules in country radio are that you shouldn't put on more than 15 percent female voices and never two in a row. The actual rules of it are that there are many fewer women in in radio. So part of it is just if you want to get your songs out there, it reduces your opportunities. Some people may be more interested in making pop stuff. Some people may not want to be punished for the stuff they say. I mean, I think there are many reasons why people leave country radio. But the frustrating thing is if you love country music and you love somebody like Maren Morris and Casey Musgraves, like I love Casey Musgraves album, you know, all of these people, I love them playing what to me is in the category of country. And the idea that people would have to leave and find a mainstream audience and go pop in order to be able to breathe is just ridiculous to me. So I could never understand the idea, like, how could they possibly be (laughs) non-commercial? They're huge stars. (laughs) It seems to be a fascinating connection between what's happening now and what took place 20 years ago when the Dixie Chicks, they were then the Dixie Chicks, they're now the Chicks, spoke out against the war in Iraq. 
Just so you know, we're ashamed the President of the United States is from Texas. Well, they're not exactly the people your civics teacher would expect to find at the center of a raging debate about free speech in America and whether you can oppose a war and still be a patriot. After all, these three women have been the reigning queens of pop and country music. How did that change country music? Yeah, I think that what happened with the Dixie Chicks had such an incredible lasting echo and sense of fear and set of assumptions that have carried over, which was, to me, surprising because I was like, you know, that was a long time ago. That was two decades ago. It came up in many conversations. The basic thing that happened was that the Dixie Chicks were a massively commercially popular, beloved group from Texas who were exceptionally great musicians. They made one comment at a concert. I mean, people always talk about it as an early version of cancellation. And the, the thing just lit on fire. And two things happened. One of them was the Dixie Chicks were pulled off the radio. People burned their albums. But also the country community also turned against them and did not support them. But in the aftermath of that, the arty, sexist, and stringent structural rules about women on country radio became all the more sort of sinister and overwhelming. And the idea of being a female country star became more out of reach and difficult. Um, There are amazing female country stars. There are amazing singer-songwriters in both commercial music and what used to be called alt-country and is now often called Americana. But the fear of being what people call chicked remains. And then, I'm sorry to go on about this, but you could contrast that with the story of Morgan Wallen, who's a very, very popular bro country star who's on now. Who, when he similarly got criticized in the press, instead of his stuff... For what? Uh, Morgan Wallen was supposed to go on Saturday Night Live during the pandemic, and he was partying and not wearing a mask, and so he was pulled off. Then he went on and apologized for that. Then a video came out of him saying the N-word. And after that, he was briefly pulled off country radio, and people criticized him. And immediately, his record shot to the top of the charts. So it was the exact inverse of what happened with the Dixie Chicks. And he's remained an incredibly popular musician. He's he, He's part of a group of musicians who dominate commercial country radio. And leaving aside the specific dynamics of his cancellation, the narrowing of commercial country music to a form of pop country dominated by white guys singing a certain kind of cliche-ridden bro country song. It's not like I don't like every song like that, but the absolute domination of that keeps out all sorts of other musicians. I think the most interesting person in your piece, if I had to pick one, is Adim the Artist. You describe them as a DIY artist with a punk mentality. So what does that all mean? Yeah, Adim is part of a a large community of artists who I think would fit this description. And Adim's great. Adim is a non-binary artist who plays country music. Their last album that they self-financed online, where everybody gave in $1, they put out an album that's called White Trash Revelry. (laughs) And it's a fantastic album. It's really empathetic and funny and provocative and political. And it really broke out at the beginning of the year. And when I first spoke to them, they had just put out the album and were hoping that it would break through. 
And over the next few months, they were on a million top ten lists, and they ended up debuting at the Grand Old Opry. Do they face real resistance in the country music world because of sexuality and um, the politics of the, of well, the, of the music? Plays, Edeem is within the category that people often call Americana. And I, I feel like they're embraced by the community there. And the community within Americana is diverse, inclusive, varied, and just more open to different kinds of voices. I don't think Adeem has any sense that they could appear on mainstream country radio, and I wish that would change, so that there was more of a range. I will say that there's been a big shift in terms of whether mainstream country artists can be out. There are several out gay mainstream country artists, including Brandy Carlisle, Brandy Clark, Shane McAnally, who's one of the most major songwriters. And so I do think that the atmosphere, even on Music Row, has changed about this. Mm. Also, T.J. Osborne. I mean, I could name some other names, but it's not just a singular person. But in Americana, I feel like queer identity and, you know, for instance, singing a love song to somebody of your same gender is not a taboo and is not necessarily Uh. pushing the lines in the same way. Well, in fact, you just did an interview with Adeem the Artist, and we're going to hear that right after the break. Fantastic. Past few years, the rent keeps getting higher. And the neighbors all have cars we can't afford. Emily Nussbaum's essay, Country Music's Culture Wars and the Remaking of Nashville, is at newyorker.com. We'll continue with Adeem the Artist in just a moment. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Way it goes, we might not be here by December. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. They are one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute has been making one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, What we do here changes lives everywhere. 
Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. As the controversy over Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town blew up, one country artist put out a musical response called Sundown Town. It's a satirical song that seems to praise hatred and ignorance. The song was by Adeem the Artist, a country singer and songwriter based in East Tennessee, who had released a handful of records in the last decade before starting to attract attention. Adeem put out the album White Trash Revelry late last year and performed at the Grand Old Opry in June. The New Yorker's Emily Nussbaum, who recently reported for us on Nashville and the state of country music, talked with Adeem the Artist. I know you did different kinds of musical jobs before you started putting out country music. You were, I believe, you did music on cruise ships. Uh, Could you tell me a little bit about your path into country music when you were younger? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I I really liked country music, but I didn't know how to play the guitar. And then somebody taught me chords at church. I started doing kind of uh, like uh, Counting Crows does Gospel Night. Songs. I'd say like probably 13 years ago, I moved to Tennessee. And I think that through that time, like listening to the incisive political work of Joe Troop, who's a, a, an Appalachian picker from the same mountains my family's from, who was openly gay, you know, and, and not afraid to, to hold space for both of those things. I, I think that I felt this sort of like... Uh, I don't know, an invitation to participate in this kind of ongoing conversation that was happening in that moment. And so I wrote a collection of songs, unsure if they would ever come out. Like, I I pretty much was just putting it on Patreon. And I recorded it with these mics that I'm talking into right now. Uh, I recorded and produced and mixed and engineered a record called Cast Iron Pansexual. I didn't have language for the way I felt. Been taught since I was born to other everybody else And if I was one of me, I could not be one of them Rainbow-loving boys who chose to live in sin I'm not saying this because I'm proud Never came out I never came out And uh, it got a mention in Rolling Stone And, um... It was like the first time any of that stuff had happened to me. You know, everything else had been like, well, this is cool because it's run by this person who's the cousin of this band that you like. You know, (laughs) when I'm talking to my dad and trying to explain why this blog is uh, exciting to me that they covered me. But telling your dad that you're in Rolling Stone is pretty much just like, oh, yeah, 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 cool. That's great. Into it. Proud. Like the Grand Ole Opry of getting (laughs) journalism. I want to talk about another song, Rednecks, Unread Hicks, which is... Another very funny, bold song. Everybody gather around, got another one here. It's got the pronouns listed, it's a genuine queer. Singing Black Lives Matter to a Jimmy Rogers melody. I'm wondering how audiences react to the song. It's a statement piece about your role in country and a different interpretation seeing the world through a different lens. Yeah. I don't know. I, I I don't play it very often. Really? I mean, it's not it's it's not one that I play out a lot. Like, I, if I can read that the room is in that vibe and that there is a a noticeable and verifiable queer presence. You know what I mean? I 
I don't mind making discomfort. You know, when I played at the Ryman, <laughs> you know, I disparaged some country music artists who I find reprehensible. I won't name them here, but Why it was not? Jason Aldean. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, people got mad and yelled, but I made a decision to talk about some things that if I hadn't talked about would not have elicited those types of response. I knowingly made people uncomfortable. Uh, just just I, I and I, what did you say? I know, I know it started with me saying the thing that drives me crazy about country music is that people like Jason Aldean and people cheered. Mm. And I said, no, fuck him. <laughs> you know, uh, so that was kind of the, the start of this, this back and forth. Anyway, all that to say, I think that it's important that people walk into a music experience where they expect to feel comforted in their bigotry and are instead challenged on it and made to imagine a world where different people exist. I think that's good. I'm here for it. I'm ready for it. But as a general rule, I try really hard to connect with people, even if I'm making them uncomfortable. A lot of people are never going to get me or appreciate me or like what I do or respond to what I do. And that's whatever. I don't care. I'm not the best at this. You know what I mean? Like, my biggest accolade so far, well, is probably the Grand Ole Opry thing. But the things that have happened since White Trash Revelry came out are not things that I dreamed of happening when I put out Cast Iron Pansexual. Because I came out as non-binary with Cast Iron's release because working on those songs made me realize my gender, <laughs> you know? I realized listening back, like, oh, man, all the ways that I was refusing myself to inhabit a space of queerness because of my marriage, because I'm married to a woman, because I, I, see, I pass as straight in public. That fear of taking up space, that fear of um, using language that isn't mine. There are a lot of folks significantly more marginalized than I am that, that I could imagine taking umbrage with my champion of this language. But also it is my identity. It's just who I am. And I think that Having the capacity to do that with my sexuality while also ruminating on gender and telling myself things like, yeah, I don't identify with a gender binary. I never really have, but I don't want to be annoying to my friends and change my pronouns. I don't want to take up space that isn't mine by like calling myself a member of the trans community when there are other people who have like worse dysphoria than me. And who, you know what I mean? And so I think playing through that same equation was like a really huge piece of me being like, you know what, I just have to be earnest about who I am. And, 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 and the systems that manipulate and disenfranchise based on those markers have nothing to do with me. I mean, they have everything to do with me, but you know what I mean? Like, I can't allow that to dictate what I talk about and what I reveal about myself. You know, a, a lot of a lot of your songs on White Trash Revelry, in really thoughtful, poetic, complex ways, are about growing up memories, complicated memories of your family, and I, I wonder how how has your family responded to the album, or also to your increasing prominence and all the different things that have happened. Um, I mean, they haven't really. My my mom doesn't speak to me. Oh, I'm sorry. Um. 
Oh, it's okay. She says it's in my best interest, and I accept those terms. <laughs> uh, my dad was at the Grand Ole Opry. He came. It was it was lovely. Um, I love my dad, but he he and I differ politically just about as much as as two people could. You know, he was a really fervent Trump supporter, and uh, I think he probably has a disproportionate amount of friends who. He knows the kind of things they say about people like me, and he probably says the same kind of things about people like me. So I think that it really is tough for him because, like, you know, I, he thinks I should be carrying a gun around with me. And, you know, I think that he he really does feel concerned. But otherwise, I think he's really, um, I think he's reluctantly proud of me. I mean, my, he told me, that somebody at work asked him if he ever thought that he'd be going to see me at the Grand Ole Opry. And he said, I didn't think it'd take this long. My dad <laughs> has believed in me for a long time and and thought I was good at this before I was, you know. You have a lot of personal songs on your album, autobiographical songs. Could you play one of them for us? It's called Books and Records. And I know it's about selling things off in a state of economic desperation. Oh, yeah. I got to... Let me see. What guitar do I have here? getting higher And the neighbors all have cars we can't afford Working two jobs now and brother I stayed tired We could always stand to make a little more Way it goes we might not be here by December We both know there's gonna have to be a break my blood to try and turn back on our power Oh Lord, there's gotta be a better way We've been selling off our books and records Instruments our grandparents played We've been selling off our books and records we're gonna buy them back someday This past few winters have been harder than expected Unknown numbers call us all hours of the day Both been learning how to cook our suppers cheaper Stretch it out until we get paid Way it goes, I doubt we ever will retire But the cast iron will be seasoned, we'll buy them and if we're lucky, we'll have moments by the fire Put a record on, read 
selling on five books and records Instruments our grandparents played We've been selling off our books and records But we're gonna buy them back someday We're gonna buy them back Thank you. That was beautiful. And, you. you know, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the class politics of country and Americana. And, I mean, sure. that song's about being broke. But there's there's this thing that goes on in mainstream country music that's all about the persona of the blue-collar man. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and you've written about this a little bit when you've written about people wearing that as a costume. There were not a lot of places where a kid like me felt heard and understood. Once you're sitting in your big house counting your money out when you wrote trailer hood. You wore my life like a costume on the TV. Milking laborers for your prosperity. You know, I criticized Toby Keith for uh, writing a song called Trailer Hood while he was sitting in his big house counting his money out. I mean, these are, these are soft-handed people we're talking about here. And, I'm, and, I, and I'm, I'm a queer person. I'm working on a practice of nurturing my femininity. That's me. But I'm also, I have a garage full of tools. And I use them to fix things around the house and to build things for the house to make it more functional. I, I, I cannot afford to have someone come fix drywall if something falls through the wall. So I do all this stuff. It's like, it's like when people call us toothless hicks. Like liberals say this. They say toothless hicks. And it's like, do you know why we're toothless? It's because of that health care you're always saying you support. We don't have it. <laughs> I talk about my Hollywood teeth. I bought myself pop-in veneers when I got a record deal because I was like, I'm going to try to look Hollywood. I can't afford real dental work. I haven't been to a dentist in a decade. So I have these stupid fake white vampire teeth that I pop in before I perform, and then I look like, a, like I'm not a, a toothless hick. You know? It's, it's, it's a weird thing. Why would, you, why would you deride someone for being born poor? Um, this is reminding me of the Jason Aldean song called uh, Try That in a Small Town. This <laughs> really repellent pro-vigilantism song. And Ann Powers, the music critic, was tweeting saying, I wonder whether any mainstream country artists are going to come out openly and say that there's a problem with this. And I wonder whether you feel that people in the industry have an obligation to speak up about some of this. Should Dolly Parton say something? <sighs> the truth is, I don't know. The truth is, I don't know. I think about this a lot because I don't know. I don't know what anybody's responsibility is to this. Dolly Parton is just a country musician. She's not an activist. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to talk shit on Dolly Parton. I'm sure I'm gonna get roasted. No, I'm not trying to get you to. I, I I genuinely um, was wondering, just because partially because I was like, is it the obligation of people with that kind of platform and power 
to talk about what's going on? Is it a different kind of political emergency? I'm not saying that it is, but that's the question that it raises because, and I talk about this in my piece, is basically sure. a lot of people are like, I don't want to alienate half my audience. I'm not saying that's her motive at right. all, but no, no, no. she's just an example. I mean, I think, I think anybody that calls themselves anti-racist and that wants to make a more progressive, inclusive scene or a prog- more progressive, inclusive world that is more equitable for all of us has a responsibility to not prop up shit like Jason Aldean does, A. I don't know that they have a responsibility to speak out every time something like that happens because it just keeps happening, you know what I mean? That would be all we talked about. And so it's tough for me sometimes because I don't have this... uh, I don't feel like to criticize people that I respect and admire and look up to equates to me denigrating them. I don't think those are the same thing. Uh, We've talked about this before, but uh, you told me that you were planning to leave Tennessee. Um, Is that still true? And what what are your reasons and what's going on with that? Yeah. Yeah. It's all very much like a, yeah, eventually we'll leave kind of thing. Um, I think there's a lot of urgency to it because of all the political stuff happening. Um, it's really hard to imagine feeling safe in this state right now. I mean, they just they just banned HRT and, and hormone blockers and any type of medicinal care for trans youth under the age of 18 in Tennessee. They're trying to ban it completely. It's really scary. I mean, our kid uses different pronouns on different days and has a very expansive understanding of gender that is clearly far beyond uh, the zeitgeist of... <laughs> Tennessee's vernacular. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's worrisome. We we are homeschooling currently, um, but it's like, you know, if my kid wants to go to public school, I want I want them to have that freedom. And here, I just don't feel like my kid has that freedom. But I mean, beyond that, there's also just you know, gentrification is happening in a in a really visceral and unchecked way here. You know, we rent from a friend of ours, and. If we weren't renting from a friend of ours who was giving us a, a really good deal on rent, there's no way that we could afford to live in the city anymore anyway. And to add that to the fact that, like, people are very outspoken about not wanting people like me here right now. Um, it's, a, it's a weird thing. And that's getting longer. They stay hard. Nadine the Artist's most recent album is White Trash Revelry. Emily Nussbaum is a staff writer at The New Yorker. I'm David Remnick, and that's The New Yorker Radio Hour for today. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Everybody's gonna be so sad to see The flag disappear into the earth with me Mama, do you think you still believe I'm gonna see the face of God The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. 
Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Frida Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele, with guidance from Emily Botine and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. WNYC Studios is supported by This is Uncomfortable, a podcast for Marketplace. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This is Uncomfortable, a podcast for Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.